Listener Production. Hey, Tom Tilly with you. In this episode of The Briefing, the story of a vaping addict. It's awful and it's physical. It's physical the way a broken heart feels physical. Like, it's not just an I want this so I'll do it thing. It's a bodily experience, a bodily draw. So that's Alex and she never got hooked on cigarettes but she got completely addicted to vaping. She even vaped on a plane One time, she even picked up a discarded vape from a stranger and eventually she needed medical intervention. So we're going to find out how difficult it got and what she thinks we should do about the vaping crisis. That is in the second half of this episode. First, today's headlines with Katrina Blowers. It's Monday, January 23. Ten people have been killed and at least a further ten are injured following a mass shooting at a ballroom dance studio in California. Thousands of people had been celebrating the Lunar New Year in Monterey Park near Los Angeles before the incident happened around 10 o'clock on Saturday night local time. There is a male suspect that fled the scene and remains outstanding uh, as of this moment. Our very preliminary description uh, has been described as a male Asian. Very sad news. That's the LA's County Sheriff Robert Luna speaking at a press conference in the last few hours and police are now investigating if it was a racially motivated hate crime given it did happen on Lunar New Year. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has passed over the Labor leadership to Chris Hipkins. Hipkins was the only contender for the role and was backed by all 64 members of the party during Sunday's vote in Parliament. He's been officially endorsed as the new leader and will be sworn in as the New Zealand Prime Minister on Wednesday. And this, of course, follows Jacinda Ardern's shock resignation announcement last week. Hipkins has stepped up and said that he'll be focusing on helping families through the inflation crisis. And I think, Katrina, this guy's a sitting duck. Um, new Zealand Labor is polling terribly. And you'd think, given you know inflation is the big problem, that the The finance minister and deputy prime minister, Grant Robinson, would have stepped up for the job, but he said, no way, I'm not taking it. And the leader of the Nationals, who's doing really well, is the former CEO of Air New Zealand, so clearly has some business experience. So he might be their next prime minister. Yeah, look, I guess all will be revealed in October. But Hipkins, he's pretty liked by the New Zealand public. He's seen as super down to earth. He was the guy who gave the COVID updates every day, so became a household name during that time and rather infamously told New Zealands to get outside and spread their legs during lockdown. And I think he meant stretch their legs. (laughs) I wonder he's popular. Novak Djokovic has backed Andy Murray's call for better scheduling in the Australian Open. I agree with him. You know, I think um, for us players, obviously, I know it's for the crowd is entertaining, is exciting, have matches midnight, one, two, three a.m. But you know, uh, for us, it's 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 really grueling. Yeah, it certainly looked really grueling for him with that uh, hamstring injury. So that's Djokovic speaking after Murray battled it out on the court for almost six hours against Kokonakis on Friday in a match that went on until 
4am. And that gave Murray less than 48 hours to prepare for his next match in the third round on Saturday, which he then lost. Last night, Stefanos Tsitsipas has booked his place in the final eight after a five-set thriller against Italy's Yannick Sinner. And Aussie star Alex Diminor is taking on Novak Djokovic tonight in the fourth round. Will you be watching that? Yeah, definitely. I think... um Millions of people around Australia will be watching that. He's a, an amazing rising star, Alex de Minor, and obviously Djokovic brings the narrative from last year. So it, it's going to be epic, I think. I am a bit worried for Alex de Minor. I think despite the hamstring injury, Djokovic is, is a man on a mission. And Buckingham Palace have revealed the details for King Charles' coronation, which will take place on May. So it's going to be a big three-day celebration. It starts on the Saturday, May 6th. There'll be the big ceremony at London's Westminster Abbey. And then Charles and the Queen Consort Camilla will uh, travel to Buckingham Palace. They'll appear on the balcony. Not sure which members of the family will be on the balcony with them. Um, But the day after the coronation, the Sunday, the palace is asking local communities to take part in a coronation big lunch, essentially encouraging neighbourhoods to have street parties or meals together. Then they'll hold a big concert um, that night. And we're expecting some big names to perform. And then the third day of the celebrations will be a bank holiday in the UK on the Monday, and the palace is urging people to volunteer in their local communities in what's being called the big help out. Sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I reckon this all sounds like fun. I think this is nicely planned and gets everyone involved. Mm. But you were saying then before which members will be on the balcony and there hasn't been a confirmation yet as to whether Harry and Meghan are going to come. Look, awkwardly, there is a scheduling clash because the coronation is happening on the same day as Archie's fourth birthday. But I can't imagine them not being there. I'm sorry. I think they will be there 100%. Yeah, look, I think you're probably right. I mean, it's going to be difficult for Charles either way. If they're not there, it's a very bad look, but having them there will draw a lot of focus. But I think he has to show that that goodwill despite yeah. <laughs> how many barbs were in that memoir. They should show, yeah, I think a united front for that coronation and both sides can demonstrate there they're willing to move on. Yes. All right, Katrina, we'll catch you tomorrow. Rihanna's about to join me as we bring you this harrowing story of a vaping addiction. So now to our story, which could change your mind about vaping. Yeah, this story really got my attention and got me thinking about how dangerous it can be. And I'm really starting to change my mind on vaping. When I first started reporting on it years ago, at Triple J, I mainly saw it as a less harmful version of smoking that was going to help people to quit. And I interviewed the health minister at the time. And like, to be honest, I thought he was a real wowser for taking a hard line. But now vaping's become so popular with teenagers and addicting so many young people to nicotine that I'm starting to think we actually need an even tougher approach. Yeah, I think I was a little bit like you, Tom, when I first started to hear about vaping. As a non-smoker, it wasn't really on my radar, but I'm also now realising the kind of problem that it can lead to and how much we don't seem to know about it. Alex Gorman is someone who has a story which really explains just how bad it can get and how hard it can be to get off them. And she's shared her story on the Guardian Australia website. Alex, thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. Did you ever imagine that one day you'd be sitting here in a studio telling your story about being a nicotine addict? 
No, I didn't. I really didn't see that on the cards for me as a, like, occasionally I would share cigarettes with friends or, like, smoke a little bit as a bonding thing. Mm. But, like, if I had more than one cigarette on a night, like, the next day I would wake up and feel like I was dying. And so I smoked maybe, like, at the height of when I would smoke twice a week one cigarette. Mm. So didn't really understand why people found it hard to quit smoking because I was like, you can just pick it up and put it Mm. down and it makes you feel gross anyway, right? (laughs) So social smoker, never any real draw to it? Not only not a draw, but uh, like fairly active, like I would do it to socialise, but an aversion because it made me feel so bad so quickly. (laughs) And then when I was living in New York in 2018, I was doing my social smoking bit, trying to make new friends in a new city. And suddenly social smoking stopped existing because everyone stopped smoking and started vaping. So I'm smoking to socialise. I go out and buy what's called a Juul. They basically look like an elongated USB stick. And I started socially vaping. And then I started habitually vaping. And then I started vaping basically from the second I woke up to the second I went to sleep. (laughs) So Alex, I mean, after that sort of being the turning point in the start of where this story starts from you, where did you realise that it was becoming a problem? So I realised just how horribly addicted to vaping I was when I relocated from the US to the UK and the vapes they were selling there had much lower percentages of nicotine. And I went and kind of re-upped my jewel pods and started vaping and was like, this isn't good enough (laughs) and started going into like fairly hardcore nicotine withdrawal. So that was in 2019. And instead of going, oh, maybe this is a sign I should quit. I was just like, I'm going to get my friends in the New York office to bring me a lot of jewel pods. Really? And so... For the work I was doing at the time, I travelled back and forth quite a lot, so I would just stock up on huge amounts of jewel pods whenever I went to the US. I would get my co-workers to bring them for me too. So I just, like, leaned into my addiction and kept it up, moved back to Australia. It was really easy to just get things delivered to me online. Like, there were plenty of shops. It took me five minutes on Reddit to figure out how to buy them. Then... They changed the legislation in Australia and said you have to have a nicotine prescription in order to buy nicotine vape products. Well, I had a prescription within an hour from a sketchy internet doctor. It took me very little time to get that script in order. And so I just kept right on doing it. And it wasn't until sort of midway through 2021 when I started sort of a few of my friends were having kids and... I was thinking about whether or not that was something that I was ready for yet. And in my brain, it's like, oh, well, you can't have a kid yet because that would mean you have to quit vaping. And when I realised that that was my first thought, I was like, oh, no, (laughs) this is a big problem. That wasn't the only low point you hit. You were in a taxi and you saw a used vape sitting there without your husband seeing. You picked it up and put it in your handbag and took it home to smoke in the bathroom. (laughs) Not only was that an absolute signal of your depravity, but it was also very unhygienic because it was during the pandemic. Yeah, it was during the the kind of height of the Omicron wave. And the most devastating thing about that moment was I'd actually successfully already quit vaping for more than a month at that point. And I was just like 
out on an evening and I'd been shielding, so I hadn't gone out that much. And we were coming home and I was in this kind of joyful mood and I just felt this vape in the back of the taxi. And without even really thinking about it that much, like it was almost kind of an automaticity thing, like just totally thoughtlessly was like, I'm going to have that. And so that wasn't even uh, sort of conscious while I was still vaping. That was a relapse. Why did you feel the need to hide it from your partner? Because he'd seen the kind of grumpiness and the struggle and the fact that I'd had to take a week off work in order to quit vaping in the first place. And I couldn't take the shame of him watching me relapse. In such a disgusting way. In such a disgusting (laughs) way. So you say the word grumpy, but expand on that because it was having severe psychological impacts on you. How, How bad did the cravings get? What impact did it have? It was absolutely awful. It feels physically painful. So an hour and a half without vaping, I would start to feel really tetchy, really grumpy, like my fuse was just cut down. Then by about hour three... It was really physically painful. Like it actually felt like there was a monster inside my lungs, like scraping at me. Like it felt like being squeezed and pulled from the inside. It was quite agonizing. And then if I pushed through the physical pain, suddenly a few hours later, complete dysphoria would start. So it was like all of the light, joy and hope in the world had been sucked away. It's awful and it's physical. It's physical the way a broken heart feels physical. Like it's not just an I want this so I'll do it thing. It's a bodily experience, a bodily draw. So then, Alex, as you've steadily gone into, I guess, understanding more about vaping and the effects it was having on you, I mean, what have you learned about the scale of vaping, particularly in Australia? My story is not uncommon. There are about a quarter of people who vape have never smoked at all, so even more virgin to cigarettes than I am. At the peak of my nicotine addiction, and this is something that I only know because jewel pods happen to have nicotine percentages on them in a way that Australian vapes don't, I was the equivalent of a pack and a half a day smoker. Whoa. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot. And in terms of the nicotine In quantity. terms of the quantity of nicotine I was inhaling. So the degree to which you're hooked, the amount of nicotine that you are inhaling when you're vaping is something that we just haven't really seen in Australia in decades in terms of supporting people through withdrawal, Mm. supporting people through quitting. We're talking about a volume of nicotine consumption that is something that we thought had stopped 15, 20 years ago. Mm. And that means Mm. particularly if you're a young person and particularly if you're a teenager, quitting is incredibly difficult. There was a psychotherapist that one of my co-workers at The Guardian interviewed who described some of her teen vaping clients as being like babies with a dummy completely unable to function unless they're holding a vape. You said quitting is a work in progress for you right now. Tell us all about it. How did you start quitting and why is it still ongoing? The first time I tried to quit was with a sort of smoking secession drug that did not work very well with my system. It made me extremely physically ill. I vomited and had nightmares. 
Then I sought the support of a psychiatrist to help me quit and he gave me some different medication to kind of cope with the acute withdrawals and I took a week off work and we had a new puppy and I just threw out all my jewel pods, stopped vaping entirely, had diazepam to kind of ease off the like very physical, very visceral cravings and so that I didn't murder my husband. And that worked really well. I got over the acute physical withdrawals and managed to stay vape three for a month until I impulsively relapsed. And then that pushed me right back into the acute withdrawals. And then eventually my GP said, maybe you should try nicotine replacement therapy. So I've been using nicotine with replacement therapy for about nine months now, which is much longer than the recommended amount, but it is the only way I've found to stop myself from repeatedly and, like, every time I see a friend vaping, relapsing. Alex, in experiencing everything that you're currently going through in trying to get off vaping, I mean, what do you say to current vapers about your story and what would you say to them? I tell people, like, just be really careful. Like, don't do it at work. Don't sit at your desk vaping. Like, just be mindful that what you have in your hand is one of the most addictive substances known to man and it is really easy to slip into a usage pattern that is horrifying for yourself and those around you. So I say, when you vape, does it just taste good or does it also feel really good? Because if it feels really good, that's nicotine and you need mm. to be very careful slash throw it away if you don't want to get addicted. They're illegal but, essentially, but they're still here, right? Yeah, they're illegal and they're still here. And I think like the only thing that can be done is like much tighter border controls, like cracking down. I mean, it's so easy to find places that sell them, like maybe to do some secret shopping to be like, oh, this place and this place and this place are selling them. and Find them. Yeah, find them and find them and take them away and destroy them because it is this huge unregulated black market. I think like from a broad policy perspective, saying this should only be a smoking secession aid makes total sense. And it is really the black market that is the problem. That was Alex Gorman, a um, pretty harrowing story, Rihanna, about getting onto and off of vapes and still needing the nicotine patches. Alex is the lifestyle editor for The Guardian Australia, where you can read her story. Yeah, and I think there's a lot that can be said there, Tom, about how do you stop something which is already illegal, but clearly that you can get under the counter and so easily. Yeah, I think we need new solutions. We need better border control, but we probably also need to consider regulating them more. At least people will know what's in them rather than being unsure and having this blurry line where you've got vape shops that aren't meant to be selling nicotine vapes, but they seem to have nicotine in them. It's an absolute mess at the moment, and I don't have the answers, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done to sort this out before a whole generation of people are hooked on nicotine, although I'm worrying that's already happening. Listener.